I'm very pleased to welcome you all here, and I'm uh, delighted that we have such a crowded lecture hall. Um, the topic tonight is um, multidirectional memory, national Holocaust memorials, and post-colonial legacies. And uh, this is an event that uh, the German Historical Institute that I am the director of, and my name is Christina von Hodenberg. Um, and um, uh, UCL um, and uh, the IAS run together. And I have to thank um, Stefanie Rauch for coming up with the idea and uh, co-organizing the event with Miriam Brusius um, of the German Historical Institute, who's sitting here in the front, and Tobias Becker as well, who's uh, sitting at the back, a fellow in modern British history. Uh, the idea behind this panel was to bring Holocaust scholars and um, historians of the British Empire and, um, and the colonial past together and to weigh in uh, in the debates that um, rage about um, how to um, commemorate difficult parts of uh, one nation's or one's past. And obviously the Holocaust is a very difficult past for the nation of the, or the nations of the perpetrators. Um, it is also not easy to remember for um, the victim groups and the nations of the victims. Um, and there is of course long-standing scholarship of the Holocaust and the question is whether um, scholars and historians working on uh, the British difficult pasts can actually take cues and learn from uh, the scholarship on the Holocaust. And so this is what we wanted to explore today. And we do have um, some distinguished speakers here and a distinguished chair as well. And my role is just to introduce the speakers and the chair. And then I will give way because Tamar Garb, um, who's sitting there in the middle, um, will chair the event. So Tamar is um, the director of um, the Institute of Advanced Studies here at UCL. And she is also the Durning Lawrence Chair of the History of Art. And her research um, is on questions of gender and sexuality, female artists, the body in 19th and early 20th century, French art mainly. But she has um, turned to South African art and photographic practices in South Africa um, more recently. and. Um, um, most recently, she curated exhibitions as well on landscape and language in South African art um, at the Venison Gallery in London. And in 2011, there was an exhibition, Figures and Fictions, Contemporary South African Photography at the Victoria and Albert Museum, London. I'm sure it's not the most recent thing you've done. Oh. But just that. <laughs> <laughs> um, then um, here um, to my left, um, so to your left as well from Tamar is Dr. Avril Alba. Um, she is senior lecturer in Holocaust studies and Jewish civilization uh, at the University of Sydney. And um, she, um, her scholarship is on the broad area of Holocaust and modern Jewish history with a focus on Jewish and Holocaust museums. And she's written a book on the Holocaust Memorial Museum, Secular Sacred Space. Um, that came out in 2015 with Paul Grave Macmillan. And uh, she has also served as curator and project director for museum projects. So for example, for the permanent exhibition at the Sydney Jewish Museum, Culture and Continuity, uh, which opened in 2009. And also um, she was a chief or co-chief <laughs> investigator 
for the permanent exhibition, The Holocaust and Human Rights, uh, which opened last year. Um, at which museum? Same. City. The same museum, okay. <laughs> so, so she's our expert on um, Holocaust memory and the museum in this case in Australia, but I'm sure this is much wider ranging than just Australia. Um, and Tom Lawson, third on the panel here, is professor of history um, at Northumbria University in Newcastle. He's also pro-vice chancellor for the Faculty of Arts, Design, and Social Sciences. I'm sure that is a big job. Um, <laughs> and, but we have invited him because he is the author and editor of several books on genocide and Holocaust, including in 2010, Debates on the Holocaust, and uh, then in 2014, The Last Man, a British Genocide in Tasmania. And he's also a co-editor of the journal uh, Holocaust Studies, and therefore very well equipped to um, bring in his expertise on this panel. Now, our third um, panelist was supposed to be Dr. Yasmin she's Khan. Here. She's, she's just here. coming, yeah. So oh, you can introduce wonderful. her in her absence, and I'm sure she's going to make an entrance. <laughs> oh, I'm amazed. Wonderful. Okay. <laughs> that kind she's of um, really uh, is a very wonderful addition to our panel, uh, panel because Yasmin Khan brings in the expertise on the history of the British Empire and the colonial past that I have been talking about. Um, she is an associate professor of British history at the University of Oxford, Kellogg uh, College. And um, her expertise is really on the British Empire, particularly the decolonization of South Asia, including the partition of 1947. So her first book, which also won the Gladstone Prize uh, of the Royal Historical Society, was The Great Partition um, on the Making of India and Pakistan. And um, her um, most recent book is The Raj at War from 2015. She has also um, presented on the BBC, um, most recently, a short series, A Passage to Britain, on BBC Two. So she also knows a lot about um, commemoration in the media. Okay, well, I'll just hand over to you, Tamar, and I hope we have a lively discussion. Thank, Thank you so much. You. Thank, you. Thank you so much. I, I do hope that um, Yasmin will walk in at any minute, but somebody has gone to escort her, so we'll see her soon. But I think we should begin in any case. Um, some of you will have seen already from the kind of publicity for the event and the post of the event that we asked these speakers to address a series of questions. So they will have addressed some, not all of them, but I'll just recap what they are and then tell you how the, how the event's going to proceed. Um, each person is going to speak for about 10 minutes or so, um, and we'll try and draw some themes and questions out of that and have a discussion amongst ourselves and then open it up to the floor. So I'm hoping very much that there'll be an opportunity for all of you to engage with these incredibly important um, issues. Uh, the questions that the speakers were asked to address really centered on the intersection between, as we've heard, colonial history and the Second World War um, and the way that they interface with one another. To what extent does our understanding and our theorization of the Holocaust intersect with other kinds 
um, of scholarship and other kinds of thinking. So what is the relationship between histories that may appear on the surface to be disconnected from one another, but which on reflection might have something to say to one another? Do we deal with competitive um, ideas between these different historical trajectories and narratives, or do, does what we learn uh, uh, in one instant help us to understand um, something in another? Thank you, Yasmin. Do come and join us. That's so wonderful. We're very happy to see you. And we used the opportunity to introduce you in your absence. So uh, you're well introduced now and known. I'm just, uh, just briefly saying what the questions were that we asked people to address. So the concept of multidirectional memory is something that I'm sure um, many of you will be familiar with. It was uh, um, argued in a book by Michael Rothberg that indeed we don't need to think about memory in competitive ways. Um, it's not a contest between whether you have a museum for the history of slavery and a museum for the Holocaust, but that actually one can live with the interaction between different historical uh, memorializations and see and think about the way in which these impact upon one another and are useful in relation to one another. So rather than competitive memory, this idea of multi-directional memory um, was adumbrated in around 2009. And that book has been much cited and um, much debated and much discussed. Uh, so it's that concept of multi-directional memory, which is one of the uh, concepts that um, I think really has uh, opened up the idea for this, uh, this panel. Then perhaps some uh, more domestic type issues, um, you know, debates around what memorials do and the relationship between memorials and history. Does Britain need a Holocaust memorial was a question that was posed. There are all sorts of controversies going on now around the Holocaust memorial that's planned for outside um, Westminster. If not, why not? If we do need one, what kind of memorial ought it to be? And what are the challenges and opportunities of thinking with the concept um, of the memorial and with curatorial initiatives around the uh, memorialization in relation to cataclysmic historical events. Um, what can scholars of the Holocaust, of colonialism, and of the British Empire learn from one another is fundamental to the discussion that I think um, we're going to have. So I'm going to open it up and ask Avril to begin and talk for about 10 or so minutes um, from her perspective, and then we'll, we'll move down and, and see where we go. Thank you. Um, thank you very much for that introduction, and thank you as well to the organisers. Um, it really feels like a great privilege to be here, and it's an exciting topic to be able to discuss. So what I thought I would do is, uh, given the fact that I work in the Australian context, and that is my field, largely my field of expertise, although as Tamar said, we will touch on obviously other issues as well, I thought I would be very focused and give you a sense of um, the evolution of Holocaust memory and Holocaust museums in Australia and how, uh, how that has developed over the last 20, 30 years. I'm going to try and do that in 10, 10 minutes. Uh, and then, and the, in particular, what I'm going to focus on is how does that today then relate to the Australia, Australia's history, and in particular, uh, the history of Indigenous Australians, contact history, frontier wars, um, those kinds of those kinds of histories and issues in the Australian context. So, um, for those of you who don't know, the Australian uh, Holocaust Museums developed in a very particular way, and there's a series of reasons why. The first is that the migration of Holocaust survivors to Australia was the largest per capita uh, migration of survivors 
after the State of Israel. So the even though in absolute numbers there were not as many as those who went to, say, the States, the impact of those survivors on the Australian community, on the Australian Jewish community, and the Australian community in general, was in some ways much more profound because they, they literally doubled the size of the Jewish community, even though due to migration, the Jewish community uh, in relative terms remains the same, 0.5% of the population, not a huge population, but the impact was, was really, really felt and continues to be felt. Um, the other thing then that makes the experience of the Holocaust Museums different in Australia is that they were founded, funded and run largely by survivors for at least the first decade and in the case of Melbourne, well into the second decade of their existence. So uh, the, the Jewish Holocaust Centre in Melbourne is opened in 1986 and in Sydney, the Sydney Jewish Museum, which I've had the most experience with obviously, is 1992. So they are pri largely private museums. This has just dramatically changed in the case of Melbourne because they just received $10 million from the federal government for their current redevelopment. So this, that will be interesting to see how, how that plays out. But largely up until this point, funds were raised privately and this gives a very different character um, to the museums. In some ways, believe it or not, it gives much more flexibility, I, I think, and in other ways it contains other issues and problems and things to consider. So I'm going to focus in particular on the Sydney experience. As I said, for the first decade or so, really dominated by survivors. And when I say that, I mean that nearly every visitor, school student that came into the space was uh, given a tour generally by a survivor or at least heard a survivor story. And that remains true to this day. And so in the words of the first curator, um, Sylvia Rosenblum uh, of the museum, when she was asked to describe what the character of the museum was, she described it as indeed being personal, private and Jewish. And that's a you know, sort of interesting thing to think about. What, what does that actually mean? I, I I personally think, and I've, you know, obviously I've researched and written and thought about this, I think it means that the survivors in some ways felt that their stories were, A, self-evident, in a sense it should be about their stories, and that they would, that the visitors would take from that what they wanted, but for them it was about giving that sense of a personal experience and a very, you know, particular down to the, to the individual. What it meant for the museum in general was that it actually didn't in many ways consider the connection to broader histories in what I'll call that first generation. It was perhaps assumed, but it was never explicitly uh, connected in the display, um, with the exception of the Australian migration experience. And that I, I could go into into great detail, but that in, in itself, I'll just give one example, and it's an example I've, I've talked about before, but I think it illustrates in some ways uh, the memory history divide because when that part of the display was reworked uh, because it was really underdeveloped in its first iteration about say 10 years into the museum's opening um, the survivors were very upset that the historians working on the project wanted to highlight the fact that Australia still had quotas on Jewish migration in the immediate post-war period. Now this might sound a bit counterintuitive but for the survivors, they were looking back at their experience, you know, 40, 50 years after. And for most of them, it was an experience of Australia as a country of refuge. 
they couldn't reconcile that in a sense with the historical record. And this was one of the first clashes, if you like, that, that really got recorded in the museum between the, the historian's perspective and the perspective of the memory of those who had lived the experience. Now, in the end, the historians won out, and, and I'm glad they won out, and, and as, as well they should. But, um, but it gives you a sense of how this, this first generation viewed their experience. In terms of the connection to broader Australian issues, it really was not something that most, to be honest with you, that most survivors thought about. And when they did, there was largely a sense of, we have our experience, that is that experience, and they do not, they do not mix. This changed with the intergenerational change. So, so um, as was mentioned, two of the major projects I worked on in the last five years was the redevelopment of the Holocaust exhibition and the addition of an ex a new exhibition called The Holocaust and Human Rights. The curatorial team that worked on that, in direct contrast to the first team that was largely survivor-led and had, believe it or not, one curator, one education person and one CEO, um, and they, they put together a museum in about two years, we had um, five core team members, none of whom were survivors. Right, except if you count our resident historian, Professor Conrad Queet, who sometimes thinks of himself as a survivor and sometimes doesn't. He was a child during the war, um, but, but it's a, a complicated, complicated story. So, um, so basically, we moved the museum forward in a sense, or we were given the task of doing so, and we were, we were without, in a sense, a survivor voice in that process. We undertook, obviously, um, we undertook consultation with survivors. We, one of the big directives was ensuring that their voices through testimony and technology, et cetera, et cetera, were part of the display. But in a sense, the decisions, the curatorial decisions were taken outside of that experience. So one of the things that we felt very strongly about, and this, again, I, I don't have the time to go into it, but I think it, the key to understanding why we chose to focus on these issues was that in the generational change, so we were sort of second, third generation, some not descendants of survivors, the designer not a descendant of survivors and not Jewish, right? Um, one of the curators not a descendant of survivors, not Jewish. We had, a, if you like, not a, I'm not saying it's a better vision, but we had a broader vision. And one of the things that we felt very strongly about was that if this was going to be a powerful memory in the Australian context, it had to relate to, um, to Australian memories as well. Now, we, we just had a very interesting conversation prior to this panel, Tom and Miriam and myself, about the small victories of the curator. <laughs> and so when I tell you about, I, I said to them, look, my, my talk is actually, it is focused on the victories because, because I believe they're really important. But I don't want to oversell them. I mean, these are they are small victories. And, in, and to give you a, a sense of that, one of the things we talked about was the labor behind the label, right? You know, you read, you read the 20-line uh, label and you think, you know, and we all do it, right? We go to museums and we, we read it, yeah, yeah, we're fine. Some of the labels and some of the label text and some of the images and some of the objects, we must have debated, and I'm not exaggerating, each one for weeks, right? Because there's that, that thought behind it and what can be included and what should be included and what has integrity to be included um, comes down to that minutiae. So when I tell you about these, what I call my small, you know, our small victories, um, they are small, but they are also, I believe, significant. So, the first display did not mention anything 
about uh, the genocide that took place in Australia and what is sometimes referred to as frontier wars, stolen generations, et cetera, et cetera. We felt we wanted to make those connections where there was either a, his, a, a historical link that we felt had integrity or a thematic link that demanded some kind of exploration. So I'm just gonna, I think because I'm gonna run out of time, I'm gonna give you two examples. The first was thanks to our, our wonderful historian who I just mentioned, Professor Conrad Queet. As we were talking about race science in Australia, he suddenly piped up in his fabulous, booming German voice and said, well, we must use the Kaltenbrunner document. And we all sat there and said, what is the Kaltenbrunner <laughs> document? And um, when he was doing archival work years and years ago, he came across a document where Kaltenbrunner had written to Himmler saying, and this was still in the, in the time where they were discussing, you know, de uh, deportation, transfer, et cetera, et cetera, in terms of the solution to the, to the Jewish question. And Kaltenbrunner had written a document, it exists, uh, a letter to Himmler where he said, I know, I know what to do with the Jews. There's a place called Australia, right? We will send them there to live with, and this is a, a direct quotation, so I apologise for the language, but I think it's important to use it, with the Austral niggers. And we will take the Aryans from Australia and we will bring them to Europe, and this will solve the problem. Now, even Himmler did not take this seriously, um, but it exists. And it was such an interesting point for us, right, because it demonstrated the connection between these ideas, right, that they, they do have a, a life between them, so to speak. So we included that, and that enabled us to talk a little bit about race science in Australia and its impact, its continuing impact today. And I don't know how, how much any of you follow, um, you know, race, race affairs in Australia, but... I talked about this incident at, a, at a, another uh, workshop that I'll finish my talk about, which was on Indigenous memorialisation. And Professor Marcia Langton, who's done incredible work in terms of Australia's Indigenous history, referenced um, that point later in the workshop and said, you know, we talk about race science as if it's something in the past, but the controversy with Adam Goods, and I don't know if many of you followed that, but a sportsman who basically got um, jeered at by a protester calling him an indigenous sportsman, a, a monkey. Basically, she said, we have race science today, you know, and she, she immediately, you know, connected that to ongoing um, persecution of indigenous Australians and discrimination that they face on a daily basis. So, so that was one opportunity. The second opportunity was more um, explicit and that was to include Indigenous human rights in the human rights exhibition. So to make the link between um, historical discrimination against Australia's Indigenous peoples, to let them speak in, in, in their own voices, that was something that was very important to us in all the case studies in the human rights section that the, those stories are told by the people who experience those abuses. So we have um, video footage of Indigenous people telling their own stories. Um, and that again was something that was very important to us and we felt was a, a really um, something that, that needed to be, to be explored in the Australian uh, context. Now having said that, I want to underscore the fact that uh, with, a, with a final example of why I think this is still, these are still just minor 
minor developments and they need to be worked through more and more. And that is through my experience of attending the workshop last, a workshop last year on Indigenous memorialisation in Australia. It was led by um, Brooke Andrew, who's a um, Wiradjuri Celtic artist, an Indigenous artist from Victoria. Um, and Brooke Andrew decided, well, he, he brought together a project that was about how we have failed in many ways to memorialise Indigenous genocide in Australia and what, what is the potential to do so. He wanted to do it in an explicitly international context because of the very idea of multi-directional memory, because he felt that that was a way of looking at connections between these, between these histories. Uh, so he had people there from South Africa, from Cambodia, from North America, all, all really was a, 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 an incredibly you know, international group that came together for that, um, for that workshop. One of the most, I think, emotive and difficult topics was around the repatriation of human remains. And in Australia, um, there, is a, there, there has been an investigation, obviously ongoing investigation, to what happened to um, the, the bones, literally the bones, the bodies, of Australian Indigenous people um, in collections overseas and how we might repatriate those collections and what might be done to, in a sense, give proper burial, give proper respect and dignity to those, um, those people right, that, uh, whose, whose bones were taken to be literally on display in, in other countries. And there has been a push to develop something called a national resting place. Now, Again, I want to underscore that there is not a consensus in the Indigenous community as to whether that is the best way to go about things. Um, th so there is, there is debate. Whether it should be in Canberra or not is also a debate because obviously Canberra has its own local peoples and those local peoples are not sure they want to be in charge of the human re remains or whether they should be of people from other clan groups. And so, um, so it's not clear whether that is the right place. But what is, I think, really clear is that at present, unless I'm unaware of it, there is not the political will to bring about the debate to see if we can have that place. There was a report commission that I think is nearly a decade old now. It was done by an Indigenous advisory group and it is yet to be acted upon. So. I think where I'll end is by saying that multi-directional memory is, is exciting and there's a lot of possibility and there's a lot of hope for it. But I believe both in the scholarly work that we do and the practitioner work that we do, it's that, it's, it's that minutiae of the contextualisation, the historical contextualisation, the political will, the factors surrounding it as to whether it will actually be efficacious in the end. Thank you so much. A um, huge amount of um, material for us to deal with, which we, we, we will in discussion, but I'm going to hand over to Tom. Okay, thank you. Um, uh, I think that, uh, um, well, I have some thoughts. They won't be as uh, well articulated as, as Avril's or as uh, detailed, but uh, um, I'll try and answer some of the questions that were posed. I guess the first question is around how uh, colonial history and Holocaust history might intersect. And I guess I'd start by saying for me, 
they intersected um, at, uh, personally at a very particular moment, um, uh, um, which was in uh, 2008, um, in the museum that Avril's just been talking about, in Sydney Jewish Museum, where we, we launched the, uh, a book that I had um, uh, rather serendipitously edited called... Um, uh, uh, what was it called? Uh, uh, Memory of the Holocaust in Australia. Um, and Avril had um, uh, um, contributed an essay to that book. And we launched this book in, in the museum. And before the, the launch, the, um, I think it was probably Avril, um, read the declaration to the former owners of the land. And at that point, I kind of, um, I kind of thought, you know, this is a very odd thing that we're doing here. We're talking about um, uh, um, uh, one, you know, with a community of survivors of, uh, um, uh, of one destructive episode, uh, literally on the site of, of another destructive episode, and another destructive episode and dispossession that was not actually mentioned in, in that book. So it was, a, it was a moment at which I realised that the book um, had, had a bit of a flaw, as it were, which was unfortunate as this was its launch, but uh, um, uh, um, it, for me, became a very kind of um, uh, important moment and, in a sense, set me off on, on, a, on a journey that then uh, um, kind of uh, uh, ultimately ended in the book that I wrote about Tasmania, um, uh, which was, was a book about... I say it's a book about Tasmania. It's really a book about Britain um, and how um, uh, Britain... Um, uh, um, uh, ultimately exported a genocide to the other side of the world in Tasmania and then ha uh, the after effects of that genocide in terms of the presence of human remains, for example, not very far from here, um, uh, um, uh, up until the, the 1990s. Um, and so uh, um, in that sense, for me personally, these histories intersect in a way that, that, that is not necessarily, um, uh, uh, you know, sort of... Um, uh, based in, in scholarship, as it were. They, they intersect in my scholarship. But whether there's a kind of scholarly thread uh, to link them together, I think, is a different matter. But I think that there is, and it's interesting, I, uh, Avril's example of the Kaltenbrunner document is quite interesting, because, of course, you know, on one level, the question of how they intersect is really a question about how we locate the history of the Holocaust, right? So do we locate the history of the Holocaust within German history, within Jewish history, or within a wider history um, uh, of, the, of, of European violence, ultimately, and the, and, and the violence that European nations have, 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 have inflicted. Um, and and the, the argument about that context really, um, uh, really drives a, a, a debate about whether these things can intersect. Now, if one accepts that what, the history of the whole course can actually be read in all of those contexts, um, then we can have some quite interesting discussions about how they intersect. If one says, no, it can only be read, for example, in, the, in, the, in a, a Jewish historical context, then it becomes much more, more difficult. But if you look, um, for example, about, at, at the kind of language that um, was used by Germans about Jews, on the one hand, on one, on, on, uh, at the most phobic end of the spectrum of that language and the way in which uh, Nazis conceptualized Jews, you could say there's very little in, com in, in common with that language uh, around the, the 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 kind of very little in common with the kind of language that Europe, uh, Europeans use to conceptualise indigenous peoples in Australia, for example. But actually, um, if you if you look at the whole spectrum of the way in which uh, Nazis talked about Jews, then you can find some uh, um, real commonality. So I'm really interested in that example, which is to to in a sense draw draw together those things because uh, um, if you look, for example, at uh, the way in which the British conceptualised uh, Indigenous Australians as essentially a people that were 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 uh, backward, were effectively um, 
um, uh, uh, not fit for this world, um, that's very similar to the kinds that some of the discourses that surrounded uh, um, Ostjuden in, uh, uh, in Eastern Europe um, uh, after the German invasion of 1939. So I think that there are ways in which these, these intersect and we can see a kind of a history of, uh, um, of the conceptualization of these peoples that, that, that is very much linked. I think that another link between these, the contextual link between the Holocaust and colonial history is in a way around the, the, the way in which that history writing is written. Um, and I think that um, the, the very notion of, um, uh, and this is a, a slightly kind of um, uh, obscure point, but I think it's an important one, the very notion of, of, of when we will often be told that the Holocaust is unique, for example, and that, that notion of uniqueness, in a way, can be read very similarly to a kind of um, it's a discourse of kind of colonial liberation, so in a, or post-colonial liberation, in the sense that that discourse of ma um, came about in the first instance. It arose from Jewish communities who were, in the immediate aftermath of the war, proclaiming, in a sense, that something profoundly different had happened to them. And they were proclaiming that something profoundly different had happened to them because the Holocaust in the 1940s and in the early 1950s was often subsumed within much more general narratives of kind of barbarity and violence at war. So to say that there was something that happened to Jewish communities that was unique was in a sense a cry of the dispossessed, of the powerless, to say, look, let's recognize that something actually different happened to this community. Now, we live in a very different context today. So we live in a context now where um, Holocaust memory is, or Hol Holocaust history has become, as Alan Confino called it, a foundational past, right? So we can, you know, we can visit Holocaust museums on the Washington Mall, we can visit a Holocaust museum in the Imperial War Museum, we can, we can you know, British school children are mandated to learn about the Holocaust, Australian school children are mandated to, to learn about the Holocaust. So in that context, to start proclaiming that the Holocaust is unique is to do a very different thing. And it's actually, when that, that was a disc, if it began as a discourse of kind of liberation, it becomes a discourse of, uh, uh, which silences others. Because in effect it says, this is, this is a, a moment of violence that is different from any other. Um, and in that sense, um, and in the Australian context, for example, if you can find similarities between uh, um, the... Uh, um, your experience, if you, if you find a genocidal experience in Australian history, but you're denied the right to call it genocide, as it were, because of that narrative, because it's, or you're denied the right to compare it in some, in some form, then that becomes silencing. Now, the really interesting thing about that is, what, on what basis, or interesting to me, on what basis might we declare the Holocaust to be unique? Well, well on one level, it's often pointed at the kind of the scale of destruction. But actually, if one thinks about the scale of destruction, in, uh, uh, in terms of indigenous Australian communities, then you know, uh, actually the scale of destruction is, is if not similar, then um, uh, um, uh, in some senses more profound. And I'll give you the example of the Tasmanian community. Indigenous Tasmanian community is effectively, every communal unit in, in Tasmania is destroyed. Every 99.9% uh, um, uh, of the population are destroyed in various forms. Um, but more importantly, it seems to me, the, 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 the languages of, of those uh, um, communities are also destroyed and lost. So actually, we're often told, for example, that the Holocaust is beyond narration, that somehow this, this, that we, can't, we can't articulate the, 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 uh, uh, the profundity of the experience. But actually, in some indigenous communities, they are literally beyond narration. Now, it, in the sense that it, can, it is impossible to narrate 
those experiences in the languages of their victims. And the, the, there's a kind of profundity, it seems to me, about the scale of that destruction that, 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 that does allow um, comparison and does allow kind of... Um, uh, um, it does allow us to, to play with the connections between those, those, those histories. And in a sense, um, the, Avril talked, I think, very eloquently about multidirectional memory. I think the notion of multidirectional memory, we're asked, is it a useful concept? I think it's a, it's a profoundly uh, hopeful manifesto. I'm not sure it's a very useful concept for understanding the way in which memory uh, um, uh, has functioned. Um, in the sense that I don't, I don't see that multidirectional memory being played out that um, uh, um, that that often. Take, for example, uh, um, uh, 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 the Holocaust Memorial Day Trust in in the UK. It's a it's a uh, uh, organisation that does you know, wonderful work, etc. But it, but it it, it will only um, uh, uh, define uh, genocide in a very particular way. Uh, it will only allow us to define genocide uh, um, as events that ha occurred effectively after the Holocaust. So we end up with a situation where the Holocaust is the kind of archetype and there's no way of kind of, of, uh, of uh, there's actually a kind of iron curtain almost across the past that means that you cannot uh, in, that, um, in that formulation uh, um, use the Holocaust as a way into other traumatic pasts because one, one is literally in a sense prevented from using, uh, using that, that language. So and in, in a personal sense again um, I guess I sort of saw my efforts with the book on Tasmania to be an effort to play with kind of multi-directional memory, to find, to trace my own personal journey from thinking about the Holocaust to thinking about violence in the British Empire. The interesting thing about that, that, that book and its reception, and obviously all academics get irritated that no one reads their books, um, uh, um, but in a sense, it was a book that was about Britain, it was about uh, um, uh, um, British violence. It was read much more uh, in Australia um, uh, than it was in Britain. So there is this sort of sense in which um, uh, um, there might be a more hopeful story to tell there about uh, Australia than, 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 in, than in Britain. Um, and, and in a sense, it hasn't, it, you know, it, it, it was never going to. But I'm not sure debates about, you know, um, the way in which we memorialise the Holocaust, for example, ever really get into debates about the way in which we memorialise um, uh, um, uh, British, um, uh, you know, British exported violence. Um, there was a report commissioned um, relatively recently about what um, British school children knew about the Holocaust, and uh, the answer is, of course, not very much. Um, the really interesting thing about that report is that, in, um, but they know they, they know bits of it. An exhaustive um, report on the part of the Institute of Education. Imagine um, a report that asked what British school children knew about slavery, for example. Um, ask a, um, uh, imagine a report which asked. Uh, uh, you know, asked uh, um, you know British school children uh, learn about the Holocaust through the national curriculum. They don't. They don't learn about uh, slavery in the in the same way. So, the question then become uh, the the question that we we the last one I'm going to deal with was about whether we need a Holocaust memorial. And the question there, I think, is what do you want to do with it? So, do we need a Holocaust memorial in the way in which we 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 it, it has been framed for us? So. When the, the Holocaust Memorial that is, is about to be built, when that, the process that first led to that was launched by the then Prime Minister David Cameron, uh, you know, who 
I was about to say something, uh, uh, which I won't, um, by the then Prime Minister David Cameron, it was launched in a sense to, to uh, it literally, it, was to, it suggested that to, to remember the Holocaust was, was in a way to, to would, would somehow make us better people. Would, the, the, the prize, this is what it said in the kind of framing of this report, the prize of Holocaust memorial, memorialization was more empathetic citizens. You know, citizens with more, with, with more international outlook, uh, um, uh, um, uh, and uh, you know, it was a, a campaign against, um, uh, you know, against uh, racism, etc. But, but actually, what we've ended up with, it seems to me, or what we, we we're threatened to end up with in the British case, is a Holocaust memory that becomes simply domesticated within existing ways of Britain looking at its own past. Um, and what I'm, uh, ultimately what I mean by that is effectively uh, uh, British exceptionalism, uh, exceptionalism, British heroism. It becomes uh, domesticated within a kind of existing narrative of the, of, of, of the Second World War, and it becomes another example of you know how Britain um, stood alone. And in a sense, that's that. What we don't need is a Holocaust memorial that does that. Now you might say. Uh, you know, why, why be so pessimistic? Well, I'll read you one um, uh, quotation. Uh, I, I read this often uh, um, uh, uh, by um, uh, Labour MP Ian Austin. Um, and this quotation is featured in the report that ultimately leads to the, to the UK Holocaust Memorial Foundation and the, the, uh, um, the, you know, the pledge to build the memorial. And uh, that report was called Britain's Promise to Remember. And I'll read it at length. Whilst Britain, this is, Austin said this in, in Parliament, whilst Britain could have done more, no one can deny that when other countries were rounding up their Jews and putting them on trains to concentration camps, Britain provided a safe haven for tens of thousands of refugees. In 1941, with Europe overrun and America not yet in the war, just one country, Britain, soldiered on. Against all odds, fighting not just for our freedom, but for the world's liberty too. I believe this period defines Britain, what it means to be British. It is Britain's unique response to the Holocaust and its unique role in the war that gives us right to claim a particular attachment to the values of democracy, equality, freedom, fairness, and tolerance. Now, I think that there is an inherent danger ultimately with building a Holocaust memorial next to Parliament, that it becomes that celebratory discourse. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't ask us to ask awkward questions about what that institution, that parliamentary institution did at that, you know, in that context to, to prevent Jewish refugees from coming from, to Britain. It doesn't ask, uh, invite us to ask dif difficult questions about what that, that institution did in terms of exporting violence elsewhere uh, um, in the world. And I guess that there is another very powerful context in Britain today, in an era that ultimately will see Brexit and, and Britain's, uh, uh, Britain leaving the European Union, is that that, that, that Holocaust Memorial can, can, in a sense, can become ultimately bound up with that discourse, which is about Britain very well alone um, and somehow different and exceptional to, um, uh, um, to, to, to our European allies. So thank you. I'll leave it there. Um, those last remarks about British exceptionalism set me up brilliantly. So that was completely, um, completely accidental. I'm, I'm thinking very specifically about the things that I know about, which are um, the 1940s and India and British imperial history in the 19th and 20th centuries. Um, and really about the failure of, of memory or the failure of multidirectional memory perhaps in Britain to think about empire and to memorialise uh, empire. And I, I was going to start with a quote, which is by George Orwell. Um, in 1941, he wrote in England, Your England, 
However unjustly England might be organized, it was at any rate not torn by class warfare or haunted by secret police. The empire was peaceful as no area of comparable size has ever been. Throughout its vast extent, nearly a quarter of the earth, there were fewer armed men than would be found necessary by a minor Balkan state. And, and that's Orwell, who is himself a, a critic of empire. And of course, he's writing in 1941 in the context of the Blitz, and also he, he knows himself that he's writing propaganda at that point. But it has all those... Um, those kind of classic tropes of, of the British civilizing mission and the comparative element relative to Europe of Britain having a unique, a unique kind of history. Um, and so I'm attracted in that to, uh, to this idea that Anne-Laura Stoller mentions of asphasia, almost a forgetting, of an active forgetting of, of Britain's empire, rather than just it being sort of forgotten and dropping off. It's actually almost an active process of forgetting that happens in Britain, particularly in the late 1940s and early 1950s, I think. And um, in that, I think the war in the 1940s are very, very important. There's a tension, um, if you like, between anti-imperialism and anti-fascism. So the, the struggle to fight the war, to, um, to, to stand alone, if you like, um, to, sort of ends up squeezing out a quite strong uh, discourse in Britain about anti-imperialism that had existed in the 1930s um, among people who were friends of, of people like Orwell. So these kind of ideological contortions um, are employed and there's a decoupling of British imperialism and anti-fascism which happens and a kind of disavow. Um, the war actually in Asia at least was, a, was an imperial war. I mean there, was a, there, was, there were two empires at war in Asia uh, struggling over Southeast Asia, and, and in 1945, reconquest and, and re-territorialization of the British Empire was very much supported by many people. In fact, in Africa, we see a recommitment to, to empire. So it's not as if, I mean, there's another myth there, which is that 1945 marks the end of the British Empire, which it doesn't. So um, I was attracted to thinking about India during the Second World War in particular as trying to understand these two things sitting in the same frame. So India during the 1940s and the war and those kind of complicated connections between imperialism and fighting an anti-fascist war and whether the two can kind of align and, and what we might learn from that. Um, so I think, I mean... Britain does have a very problematic relationship both with empire and with war, uh, and there's lots of evidence for that. I mean, you can look at any number of newspaper articles. I mean, there was a YouGov poll that's often cited in 2016 saying 44% of people have a celebratory um, or a positive attitude towards the British Empire in Britain. Um, there are uh, many people who've written, both journalistically and academically of late, about an, a nostalgic imaginary of the past and how that has informed contemporary politics. People like Fintan O'Toole um, and Paul Gilroy uh, talking about imperial nostalgia and also nostalgia for the Second World War and how they, how they work together. Um, and anybody who, who talks about empire in, in, a, in any kind of public forum is always faced with this question about, you know, well, didn't the empire do some good? Wasn't it? You know, it's always sort of split around this moral binary of good or bad. Um, there's a there's a sort of sense that um, the continuity of the English slash sort of British past hasn't hasn't meant a, a moment of reexamination of, of of contemplation, as you've seen in in comparison to Australia and 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 uh, Germany. 
there haven't been those moments. So, so there's a lot of denial about New World expansionism, uh, settler colonialism and its effects, as we heard in, in Australia, of famines, dislocation, reprisals after uprisings like 1857 and the, the so-called mutiny in India or the Morant Bay Rebellion in, in Jamaica, um, uh, Mau Mau later, and, and so on. And we also know that in London or anywhere, you can see um, celebrated very publicly uh, colonial figures. You know, just have to go to Trafalgar Square, you can see Havelock, who's celebrated for, for suppressing the Indian uprising. Um, Colston still stands in Bristol, the slave trader. Uh, Clive of India is, is, is around, around the corner. You have um, uh, Rhodes, of course, the site of contestation in Oxford. Um, so this, um, I'm interested in, in that forgetting, but also that imperial impulse, which, which does seem to be a wider Europe, European phenomenon in the late 19th and early 20th, 20th century towards uh, ra racial classification and based on biological determinants and cultural different, differentiation, which empire British imperialism is. I mean, it's based on, on ultimately on, on differentiation between peoples and is undergirded by a sense of um, imperial mission. So one um, specific example that I've thought of in relation to this is, is, and which has been in the newspapers for various reasons and is still controversial when talked about, is the Bengal famine of 1943, um, in which uh, in India, in Bengal in 1943, in the midst of the war and, and parallel to the events that are happening in Europe, um, three million people approximately, uh, died of malnutrition and starvation, um, but also from diseases brought through physical attrition because of the shortage of food through um, cholera and other diseases. And uh, there's, there's some quite striking comments in 1945 when the pictures from the camps in Europe start to, to reach India of people making direct equations between the kind of the bodies that they see in photographs and, and the things that they have seen themselves in the streets of Calcutta. Um, the causes of that famine are, though, very complex, and they are very uh, not easily summarized. Um, they relate to the cutting off of rice stocks from Burma, a, a cyclone which happened in Midnapore, um, food which was being allocated to troops and which was directed away from... Uh, ordinary people, ordinary citizens, the lack of a rationing system uh, relative to Britain. In, in India, there was no rationing until 1944. Um, and also decisions around relief and whether a famine was happening. And there's been a lot of controversy about Churchill's specific role in this, which you may, you may have read about and know about. Um, because Churchill seems to have taken a particularly, um, well, he, he took a, a very uh, obstinate, difficult line on relief. Um, he, he was pleaded uh, with by Wavell, who was the viceroy sort of on the spot in India, to send more relief at this time. And he, he very clearly um, didn't reply, uh, blocked relief, and, and said he, didn't, he wasn't going to send relief in that direction. And there's, a, there's one particular document which, in which he talks about Indians in that context as breeding like rabbits. So there's a, sort of, there's a very clear um, relationship to... Um, racial stereotyping, but also a, a kind of punitive thought, in, I think, in Church's mind at the time because of the context of the war about Indians who hadn't been cooperative necessarily in the, in the war effort at that point, um, around the, this, this idea of giving relief. Um, 
So uh, some, I mean, uh, Madhushri Mukherjee in particular has been kind of wanting to, to particularly isolate Churchill as the, as the specific actor responsible in that case. But I, I still find it a stretch to, to attribute this terrible event, you know, these terrible events to kind of find um, a place to equate this with what happened in, in Europe. And I would, you know, be something we might talk about further, but I think there are, you know, Sashi Tarur has said Churchill has as much blood on his hands as the worst dictators in, in Europe. But I think there is something different going on here in the 1940s in India. And I, I am interested to explore that, but I think there is something different. There isn't an organized plan to kill and there isn't a genocidal um, impulse at that point, which is, doesn't mean it doesn't exist elsewhere in other times in the British Empire, and, and I think the settler uh, question is a, is a very specific one. So I, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm going to sort of suggest that um, we have to be cautious <laughs> that these things are very um, complex and that uh, imperialism in itself, British Empire, is a very um, big and difficult thing to summarize. I mean, it's a, it lasts for 350 years. It catches in about a quarter of the world's population up uh, in it. Uh, it, um, it sometimes r relies on ideas of Chris, uh, Christianizing, of taking the English language. Sometimes it doesn't. It uses race in very specific and different ways at different times. Um, although race is, is often there. Um, there are moments of atrocity, and there are definitely moments of very extreme violence, of, and as, I've, as I've suggested. But, um, you know, we do have to kind of be, be, be careful with our terms, I think, and just be very sensitive to this very specific context in which things happen. And I, I, um, I was very uh, affected by talk that Saul uh, Dubal, who works in South Africa, gave about Roads Must Fall, the campaign to bring down the statues. And he made the point, um, and I'm probably kind of brutally <laughs> kind of summarizing his, his, his very skillful talk, but he made the point that something like Roads Must Fall is different in South Africa to what it is in Oxford. That it just is, that, that words and terminology might be the same, but they might have different kind of meanings in different contexts. And I was, I, I was very persuaded by his argument. But particularly at a time when things travel very fast now with social media um, and with international press, online press, that we, that um, I, I feel that I, you know, my job as a historian isn't to, um, to invert the older narratives or just turn them upside down. It's not to kind of just turn them inside out. Um, so I would very strongly recognize the centrality of the 1940s to the current world order and to memorialization. Um, and, and very much like to think about the ways in which multidirectional memory might work, but I also feel that we have to um, uh, also tread carefully. Thank you so much. Um, the way you ended, Yasmin, was in a way the way I was going to begin in asking the questions of the three panelists, and, and I think you point to the conundrums here. Um, which is to acknowledge forms of violence that actually stretch uh, across, let's just talk about modernity rather than, you know, even going back, but, you know, modernity, 
where one thinks of racial capitalism, when one thinks of slavery, and one thinks of the invention of so-called race science and the invention of the category of race. I mean, modernity is a bloody business, um, as you also so beautifully demonstrated. But um, what our responsibility is to think about the specificity of each manifestation of that kind of violence and violation of human beings, um, as opposed to our responsibility not to privilege one form of suffering over another. So we're kind of caught between not wanting to be seen to privilege one form of suffering as having somehow some kind of monopoly on pain as opposed to others, but at the same time, I think, um, really have to be very, very careful, um, as many of you indicated, about not just creating a kind of strange, amorphous conglomeration of human suffering and violence, because the precision and the specificity of each situation um, makes it unique. I mean, I would say that each of these is unique. Um, and, and our responsibility, I guess, as cultural theorists and historians and curators and educators is to try to, to find that out. So I wanted you all to talk a little bit more, if you wouldn't mind, um, between the tension that um, exists between this acknowledgement of violence that we've all talked about in all these very different precise um, situations and then the specificity of those um, you know, instances. Uh, how do you, how, what more can we say to try to balance the, um, the conundrums that we face here? Do you, yeah. Um, Albert, I'm sorry, could you bring another mic over? Then we've got three. Thank you so much. That one to Avril, and then we don't have to. Brilliant, thank you. Can I respond? Yes, please um, do. Because uh, I, th I think one of the issues um, around compar comparability and, and, you know, uh, and specificity of violence, especially when one starts to talk about the Holocaust, is that actually well, the Holocaust is, is, is not an event, it's a set of events, it may be an epoch, it's, it, it, but it's certainly not a single set of events and it certainly can't be character, characterized in a singular fashion. So there are elements of the destruction that um, are, uh, um, uh, um, that the Nazis um, uh, wreaked on, on uh, Jewish populations in Europe, which might be directly comparable to the Bengal famine, for example. So, you know, if uh, in, in the sense of the control of food policy in, in various parts of, uh, of Eastern Europe, but there are obviously parts of it that are, that, that, that are not. There are parts of, uh, of the experience that we that we call the Holocaust that we can compare to the to the you know modern migration refugee crisis, and then part, there are parts that, that, that can't that we can't because the context uh, changes. So one of our problems actually is that we, we, we have this thing called the Holocaust, which is actually not a singular set of events at all, um, uh, um, but is, is understood often in a, in a rather singular um, uh, manner and that that becomes a, a block because of course, on the, uh, on the one hand, of course, trains went from you know, Paris to Auschwitz and that is very different to, um, uh, um, to some of the other experiences that we're talking about. But it's as, as different to the experience of you know, um, Jews in the Warsaw Ghetto as it is to you know, other experiences outside of that particular context. Um, yeah, I think it, it, 
Well, I'll give another example. I just um, It's a shameless plug in some ways, but my, my colleague Shirley Gilbert and I just uh, literally in the next month will launch a book called um, The Holocaust and Racism in the Post-War World. And I think what that book tries to do, there's a series of, it's an edited volume, there's a series of contributors, is it tries to grapple with, in a way, precisely what Tom's talking about, which is you have this uh, now what we think of as a sort of a monolithic memory of the Holocaust, and it boils it down to very specific case studies. So everything from Caribbean writers to the, the way Holocaust memories functioned in South Africa um, and the relationship to apartheid, et cetera, et cetera. And I think what we have learnt, and we learnt a lot from doing this book, but one of the key things that we've learnt is this is that multi-directional memory, and Michael Rothberg actually has a also has a piece in the book, but it it has to be historicised at every point. I think that's really the key because otherwise you do end up with these sort of alarming generalities, which I think you really pointed to, Yasmin, um, and you lose the why the memory becomes powerful at certain times and where it can become destructive at other times. I mean, I gave you my you know small victory speech as my 10-minute panel thing, but the, um, the chapter that I contributed talked uh, specifically about the destructive use of Holocaust memory in Australia through what uh, became known as the Demidenko-Darvel affair, which some of you may be um, familiar with, which was a, a case of literary fraud that, uh, that really sparked a very divisive, I think, revealing and interesting Ding debate in Australia about Holocaust memory um, and and basically war criminals in Australia, um, but it has you know there's also been times where that memory's had a very destructive force as well. So I think for me the key is really uh, keeping it at that level of um, very much uh, his his um, yeah historicization that allows us to see the flaws, the potential, the the traps um, of at the same time, I mean, if you think about, I'm completely with you, obviously, in terms of specificity, but I'm also aware, coming as I do from South Africa, um, how, for example, the category of race uh, functions across different um, uh, locations. And one of the things that's pretty extraordinary about the Jewish Museum in Cape Town, which you may well know, or some of you may know, but um, the Jewish Museum, which is a post-apartheid uh, uh, phenomenon. Um, it was developed in the 90s, but precisely its function has been to think about the invention of the category of race in relation to the local history of South Africa. So it was thought to be a complete, you know, with a country as fraught as that in relation to um, the history of the racialization of its subjects um, and the deathly effects of that, it would have been an absurdity to have, as in a little bit analogous to what you're saying about the indigenous questions that you were asking. But in that particular context, I mean, absurd to think of a Holocaust or a Jewish museum, actually it's the Holocaust Museum, which is next to the Jewish Museum, which is actually has got an extensive education program working with school kids from across the demographic and the population to think about the deadly effect of the invention of the category of race. I mean, that is the kind of primal, that's the sort of primal trauma, is the invention of this as a, as a category. And so in that context, making those kinds of links and connections is absolutely crucial and I, I, so I think that the specificity of each context you know is really important and 
Jasmine. I suppose the thing that's striking about that is that these things now exist in Australia and South Africa and elsewhere, but in Britain there's just so little. I mean, there's very, there's very little that seems to really kind of take on these categories and really think about them. Um, I mean, people might have examples. I mean, there are probably places in Britain where you can find this and there are small wins in, in um, major museums, but it um, just seems there's a gulf yeah. there between those, um, between those approaches. And the, we and the danger, I guess, is then that something like the Holocaust Museum in Westminster ends up being weaponized, as you say, into a national narrative which doesn't actually ask those questions at all. There is no impulse in this country to ask questions about, you know, parallel histories, is there? Um, um, so, so I think that is very interesting, yeah. I, I, I was very interested in what Yasmin was saying about, um, about the 1940s and, uh, and you know, sort of stopping to thinking about colonialism. And I was just, in a sense, one of the things about one of the things about violence in the British Empire is that, um, uh, or in, uh, prior to that, in the late 19th century, if you take the Tasmanian case again, I mean, that's just what I know about. But actually, um, the reason my book, for example, is called The Last Man is because that was the headline in the Times when the quote-unquote last Tasmanian man was killed. Um, so this, the presence of this violence, the presence of the idea that Britain had a destructive impact in other parts of the world was, was commonplace, was every day. You know, the, this idea that the, that the British Empire swept indigenous peoples out of the way with the mere breath of their presence, as it were, like dew before the morning sun, all of this kind of rhetoric, was very commonplace, was represented in museums, was written about in newspapers, and then it disappears in a way. So I had this long argument with the publisher, for example, about what where, that they wanted to call this book about forgotten generation. And it's not for, it wasn't forgotten, it was very present and remembered, and then ultimately does disappear from public discourse. But we're often told, for example, about... The, the Holocaust, that it's, it's it, one of the reasons why we can't understand responses to the Holocaust is because it was impossible to imagine the notion of kind of racial extermination. So people couldn't grasp with the idea that, that a race was being exterminated. Whereas actually the notion of racial extermination was a commonplace kind of uh, idea within speaking, talking about the British Empire in not very, not very long before those events were happening. It, it, it disappeared from discourse in some way, but it was present. And, and there is a sense, I think, I mean, it's not too far to say that it's sort of anti-patriotic, perhaps, or, you know, you can be perceived as being anti-patriotic for raising these things now in contemporary Britain, even though, actually, it's very easy to find out about them. I mean, you don't have to look very far or look very hard to find um, evidence of all these things if you're kind of layman and you're interested in the history of the British Empire. But yet, um, there is this kind of willful denial, I think, and a, and a sense that... It, to even raise that question is to is to challenge somehow the moral righteousness of the British state and therefore to actually potentially preclude yourself from yeah. from the nation. Yeah, it's interesting. We've been thinking about memorials and what memorials might be and whether memorials are places or spaces or, or what might you know constitute a memorial. But I'd like to also ask you all to think a little bit about what museums might do because museums are not memorials, but they're different kinds of sites. Um, in which we imagine material culture being embedded. And I'm reminded by that because I was thinking about the origins of Michael Rothberg's book um, when he, um, you know, there was this, I can't remember who this person was, but there was somebody who made a very, very, uh, one of you might remember, a very uh, kind of radical speech 
criticizing Washington and the US for having a Holocaust memorial, but not having a museum to the history of slavery. And it was at that point that I think that uh, Michael Rothberg, he mentions this in the book or in the introduction, um, opens up the question about competitive memory and how we think about these um, forms of violence and whether they're equivalent. But I was thinking about the, the recent extraordinary Museum of African American History and Culture that, has, that has now emerged on the mall and which in some way tries to redress that balance. And we had Lonnie Bunch here for three months as a visiting research fellow last year and talked a lot and worked with him in thinking about what it was to make a museum when the residue of people's experiences had actually been to many, in many ways or it appeared to have been eradicated. So I'm thinking about this as, you know, what do you, what do you have left once uh, so many people have been killed and so many lives have been ruined? And he did this extraordinary thing of, you know, he now it's starting with a museum which had nothing. It now is a museum with 40,000 objects. But the objects consist of the residues of people's possessions, whether it's the little metal um, thing that a person would carry in their breast pocket in which they had their freedom pass, whether it was, you know, the biscuit tins in which old family heirlooms and knickknacks might be kept, whether it's photographs, etc. He made this, or samplers, a lot of sewing and samplers of things, things that are not necessarily, you know, great works of art or great monumental things, um, but come to constitute the history of the experience of a people. So I'm thinking about those kinds of debates on the one hand, what happens after, you know, material culture is destroyed, how do you create a space for thinking about the past through material culture, which is not just about memorialization, but is also about giving voice to populations and peoples. And then the other incredibly um, challenging questions around human remains, um, which is also one of the big uh, museological debates. Repatriation on the one hand, um, not only of human remains, but of objects, but the particular ethical conundrums that human remains um, uh, pose to us. So interested to think about um, you know, the different ways in which different cultural and historical experiences have been thought in relation to these museological and curatorial um, initiatives. So I'd love to hear more of, of your perspectives on that. Gosh, they are huge, <laughs> huge questions. Um, gosh, okay, I think it, it probably, it, it might might be helpful to again bore it down to a few a few really you know small examples, but I think then illustrate your larger points and how difficult they are to grapple with. Um, so I'll try and I'll try and limit it to two. I think um, having you know having done work with objects, it's not obviously, and this is you know in some ways I feel like I'm I'm stating the obvious. It's not the object, it's what you do with the object. It's how you interpret the object, it's how you place the object, it's what you feel the object can convey. Um, that's the curatorial work, right? That's what you that's what you do. Um, and and that is very, I mean, it's it's incredibly intricate work. I think it's partly what makes it such wonderful work, but it's incredibly inc intricate and um, and painstaking. I guess that's the word painstaking. Um, but I but I think it's that's when you sort of unlock the potential of something like that. So I do think that in that way, museums have a subtlety to them that perhaps memorials do not. But but when we're talking about the kinds of topics that we're talking about, I think that this term that's become commonplace is worth thinking about is that most of the places we're talking about are 
memorial museums, right? So they mix the two as well, and they mix those two genres. And so they, ha they hold a responsibility to both. And I think there are ways that they then succeed and ways that they, they fail, and obviously we try and learn from the failures. So in the Australian experience, there is, uh, in Canberra, there's the, um, the National Museum, Australia's National Museum. And it was an experiment, and I think it remains an experiment. Uh, and it, it, those of you who may know it, it's this incredible sort of POMO kind of <laughs> construction. And when it when it opened in the early, uh, it was meant to be ready for, for the anniversary of Federation, um, there was a lot of shock around the, uh, what was called the Gallery of the First Australians, because it was an explicit reference to the Lieberskin Museum in Berlin. Now, on, on one hand, that was extraordinary, you know, because it was sort of like saying in a public space that, that what, you know, what Tom was saying, basically, that what happened here was, you know, is connected to what happened there and we have to be able to somehow contend with that. Unfortunately, um, the display has gotten, in a sense, more and more ethnic what I'd call sort of ethnographic within it, right? So it doesn't actually fulfil the potential of the memorial. I think the first, you know, it's hard to remember from 20 years ago, but the first displays were, were actually quite confronting. The last time I went there, I felt ex exactly that sort of domesticisation, or for, for want of a better word, of um, Indigenous history in that space. So I guess that's the other point of awareness that we always have to have, which is that the displays change. I mean, they should change, but whether they change in the direction of being more challenging or less challenging um, has so much to do with the context in which they are developed. So, so there are definitely, you know, failures in, in that way in the, in the curatorial work. Um, on the other hand, very, very small objects, I think, can be successes. And I'm not, I'm not saying that everything we did was a success, but I think, you know, I think of very small objects that I really like in our display, and I was, um, I was chatting to Miriam about this before, that we, we, one of the things we were really aware of is that we didn't want to end the Holocaust display with a sort of redemptive ending or, a, you know, or to send people into spiralling into despair. And so one of the sections that we developed was a section called Remnants. And what was this section? It was single objects that had no specific historical, um, you might say, importance. And I'll give you uh, the example of one, which is a blouse. Now, this blouse belonged to, um, uh, to, to a survivor who kept, it was a blouse that belonged to one of her sisters. No one in her family survived. She kept it in her cupboard for years and years, and she had eventually went on to have a daughter. The daughter is now in her early 70s. And for years, she knew her mother had this blouse. She had no idea what it was about. But every so often, her mother would look at it and then just close the door again. And finally, one day, she said to her, you know, what is this blouse? And her mother said to her, look, it was one of my sisters. It's the only thing I've got left um, from, from my family. And I, it reminds me. Basically, it's a memory of them. So when her mother died, she, she took the blouse. <laughs> and, she, and then she didn't know what to do with the blouse. And so she eventually, she donated that blouse to, to our museum. Now. The reason we felt that that blouse was significant was because to us it was a symbol of loss, um, destruction, continuity, resilience, um, deep, deep sadness, um, also the, the possibility of reclaiming something. It had everything in that one object. And 
to us it felt like that's the way we want to end the display because we want people to realise this is an unfinished story. This is a story that continues to resonate today. So I think, it, I, I guess I end where I, where I began, begin with is it, it's not the object. It's what you bring to the object and it's what you do with the object. And I think that that's the kind of museum work we should be doing. Um, my my sort of only experience really of working with museums is being on the advisory panel for the new Second World War galleries that are being developed um, at the Imperial War Museum at the moment, and there's curators um, from there here, so, so uh, I sh I'll be careful in what, what I say, but um, <laughs> it's been fascinating, it's an amazing experience, it's a fascinating experience, but to see how to condense down really the history of the war into those galleries and into that space and the constraints of that and what can be included and what can't. And, and so I thought the, the Rothberg point about a zero-sum game in some ways actually does kind of... I, I think in that context there is, a, there is a challenge over space, over what's told as a British story, what's told as a global story, what's told as an imperial story. And um, there's also a, a legacy of, of, of things, um, of material, you know, what's been donated. And, of course, in... In that context, there's a skewed legacy because there's so much donated from the, the British context and not so much from the international. So those curators worked incredibly hard and they've got some fantastic things. With it. There will be um, elements of the Bengal famine, for instance, in that new display. And um, there's, a, there's these sketches by um, Bengali artists who, of, of Bengal famine victims. You know, so they, they, they've worked very hard to fi fill those gaps where they, where they exist. But, I, but it's, um, there is a kind of institutional legacy in a way that, that drives it in a certain direction and also very hard decisions that just have to be made in, short, in, in practical terms about space as well. I'll just say something briefly about human remains, partly because, uh, uh, I mean, in the sense of the big debate about return of uh, human material to, to Tasmania to Australia in the 1990s, and one of the really interesting things about that debate is you see within it the residue of the kinds of um, uh, assumptions that had actually underpinned violence and dispossession in the first instance. And so what you see first is a kind of, um, is an idea that, um, so, okay, so it's not okay anymore to display human remains, and there's a kind of reluctant acceptance of that, um, although you could see uh, Tasmanian skulls, for example, um, displayed in the um, Anatomy Museum in the University of Edinburgh until 1997. Uh, um, but it's not okay to display human remains. But then the, it's a much bigger ste step to return them. And why is it a bigger step to return them? Because, firstly, well, the, this argument that they'll be somehow lost to science. And the assumptions that underpin that are, are so manifold. So there's this assumption, firstly, that you're returning them to a group of, uh, you know, from a rational place to an irrational place, to, you know, to an ir a rational Western community, to an irrational non-Western community. There's literally the, the, the idea that, in, in, you know, uh, uh, that you're returning human material that is from the Stone Age, but it's not from the Stone Age. It's from the you know it's from the late nineteenth century, but in a sense that this notion of it being lost to science is you know has that kind of uh, um, uh, um, that element to it. So you see, in a sense, the the repetition of the kind of attitudes in those debates that were were effectively the attitudes, as I say, that underpin the dispossession in the first instance. Re, re surfing, they're buried and they're they're, they're different. Um, but they're but they are or they're buried, but they're and they but they are they're pretty close to the surface. It would it would seem to me. Mm. And just just on that, um, at the the um, at Brooke Andrews workshop, 
there was a moment where Marsha Langton said something that I, you know, really just stuck with me, and I don't think I'll ever forget. Um, where she she was speaking on behalf, in a sense, on behalf of Australian Indigenous people, but she could have been speaking about many, many communities. And she just said, you know, what other people have to fight to bury their dead, mm. you know? And it's kind of as simple and complex as that. But but it, the really interesting thing is that almost the, the the pretense within those debates that actually in in kind of rational Western traditions we somehow don't bury our dead. <laughs> that, uh, that somehow all of the you know people's uh, bodies are given up to science, as it were, which is obviously not not, not mm. the case. Well, one of the most sort of profound and moving experiences, of course, in South Africa was the return of Sarah Bartman's remains and the and the way in which that. But that then did become a very big political gesture, you know, because these then become used. They're they're open to be used. It wasn't just a great sanctified burial of the dead. It was also, uh, it was, you know, it becomes, it becomes weaponized in all sorts of ways, and so complicated questions here. But I'm aware that there are a lot of people in this audience with expertise in these areas who might have some contribution to make or question to ask. So I'm going to open it up now.